In Psalm 73, we read these words, Who have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Father, we thank you for this truth. There is nothing on this earth that we can desire that is as important and as great as you are. We know that our hope is in you, both in this life and for eternity. And so we come to you this morning and we give glory to your name and praise that in the midst of the tragedy that we see all around us, that God is at work. And Lord, even though sometimes we cannot understand what is transpiring or the reasons for it, we know that nothing is beyond the pale of God's power, of God's knowledge, of God's work. And so we're grateful to have a personal knowledge of the God of the universe. And we're thankful that you have given to us this letter, which is in our hands today, that you will teach us from your word, and that we will be instructed, and that we will drive the truth that will help us, as Jesus said, to be set free. And Lord, I pray that you will guide us in our, our, our study of the book of Judges this morning and bless wherever the word of God is being proclaimed here on this property, through the city of Reading and around the world. And we'll thank you for the victories that you win. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the third chapter of Judges, third chapter of the book of Judges. I'd like to read again the first 11 verses. We began studying these uh, last week. This is a very powerful passage of uh, Scripture, the first part of the third chapter, of course. Much of the book of Judges has really, really insightful things that are important for us, but this passage, I think, has uh, extra special truths for us. Let me reread uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 11. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. These, the, the nation, these nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Baal, Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labohamath. And they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the, Hivite, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives, and they gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asherah. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. And when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Then the hand, then the land, had rest forty years, and Othniel the son of Kenaz died. 
I mentioned last week that in, in the first part of this passage, we have mentioned many of the areas in which the uh, Canaanites were left. And specifically, because it mentions uh, Mount Lebanon, or the mountains of Lebanon, and uh, Baal Hermon, and so forth, that this is a reference, along with the mention of the Sidonians and the Hivites, of the peoples who lived to the north, up in what is today the land of Lebanon. Uh, that area was supposed to be part of Israel, too, but Israel never conquered the area, except later during the day, time of David for a brief period of time. And then it also mentions the five lords of the Philistines. This is down in the south, from Gaza to a little bit north of Gaza. In that particular region, uh, there were five major cities, uh, Gaza and Ekron and Ashkelon and Gath. And uh, I'm leaving one out, but uh, there was one other one there that were important and, and become more, much more important even as we move through the book of Judges and even into the days of David the king. Because David, you remember, slew Goliath of Gath, uh, one of the major Philistine cities. Today, if you go to Israel, what you'll find is that Gath is nothing but a tell. It's not even positively identified. But if you uh, stand on the top of the tell at Azekah and, and look off towards the south, a little bit to the east, you see the tell which is often uh, identified as the tell of Gath. These were cities that would prove to be very... Uh, trying to the nation of Israel in the years ahead that we're heading on into. And of course, it would be against the Philistines that Shamgar would fight at the end of this chapter, and of course, which um, Samson focused his attention on. And then <clears throat> also in, in this third chapter, we see again the repeat of the major Canaanite peoples, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Perizzites, and so forth, meaning that little uh, groups, little communities, of all of these different tribal peoples were still living scattered through Israel. So this creates a, a situation that enables Israel to be sucked into the paganism of their neighbors because as we read, they gave their daughters in marriage to the Canaanites and took the Canaanite daughters to marriage uh, with them and that opened the door to the acceptance of the gods of the Canaanites. And what is interesting, you have, as I highlighted last time, you have no reference at all that any Canaanite ex was turned to Yahweh as a result of this compromise, this uh, syncretistic relationship which developed here. God warned against it and told them they were not to intermarry and not to accept the worship at all, period, end of point. But they have uh, done this, and as a result, we're told there in verse 7 that they forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord their God and turned to the worship of these other gods. What we see in this passage is an illustration of the helplessness of human beings in situations that God brings upon them. We are not able, as Israel was not in their own strength, to do anything about the circumstances that came upon them and circumstances that often will come upon us. What we do see, however, demonstrated through this is the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign and this scenario exhibits both these extremes, the helplessness of mankind and the omniscience, the omnipotence, the sovereignty of God. All Israel could do in this crisis was to submit to their oppressors. They had no choice but to submit to their oppressors. And then to call out upon the God whom they had forgotten. 
which illustrates, of course, the fact that they had not completely forgotten God. Somehow, they remembered him in the midst of their crisis, and so they called out to, to him. They were powerless to mitigate their circumstances in their own strength. That is an important truth for we independent Americans to remember that we cannot mitigate our own circumstances. If God is working through those circumstances to achieve a particular purpose, we cannot countermand his purposes in this. And we will be destroyed in the process if we attempt to do so, as Israel would have been. Had they rose, risen up in rebellion against Cush and Rishathaim, they would have been crushed because God would not have empowered them until they turned to him. God alone was able to raise up a deliverer. God alone was able to empower a deliverer, and he would do so. Joshua was dead. Caleb is dead, but Caleb's nephew is alive. His name is Othniel, and he was available, and he was a proven warrior. Let's just go back and look at the reference to Othniel in the 15th chapter of Joshua. Joshua 15, 15. In Joshua 15, 15, we read, Then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. This is Caleb. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath-sephir, the city of the book. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. So he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as a wife. And so his nephew was responsible for capturing one of the Canaanite fortified cities, the next one further to the south from Hebron, as you come down the Judean highlands towards the Negev in the south. Um, Debir was one of the walled cities there, and Othniel captured that particular city. So already he was known in Israel as, as a warrior. But the key to Othniel's effectiveness as a deliverer was not in the fact that he was a great or proven warrior. That was not the case. Because first of all, when he captured Debir was decades before this moment. Decades before this moment. And therefore he was much older now and probably not you know, full of the prowess he had before and, and not capable to go out and strongly lead as others, as he had been earlier. But secondly, and, and more importantly, he had been living in Israel through the eight years of oppression. And had he done anything up to this moment? No. Had he delivered Israel up to this moment? No. He would not be the deliverer until God put his hand on him and said, Othniel, you're my man. You will go forth and do the job now. Prior to that, he could do nothing. Just as later on Samson, when, when he defied, when he, uh, when he disobeys God, he's as totally powerless in the hands of the Philistines. He's as weak as a kitten. But in God's strength, he was unbeatable. The key to his effectiveness is found in the first phrase of verse 10 of Judges 3, where we read, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, that is, Othniel. As we read through the book of Judges, and as we read through other of the historical books, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, as we read through the prophetic books, what we discover consistently is that those men and women who accomplished great things were for God were those upon whom God placed His Spirit. Nothing will be accomplished for God without the empowerment of His Spirit.
The Lord, the Lord later reminded Zerubbabel of this in a way that we, are, we often quote. In uh, Zechariah 4.6, we have the phrase, It is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It is not by human might, it is not by human power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, to understand the impact of that passage, because we often quote it out of context, we need to realize that when Zerubbabel heard those words that were delivered through Zechariah from the angel of the Lord, conditions were very, very bad for Israel. Zechariah lives in the 6th century. Zerubbabel lives in the 6th century. The events we're talking about now are 600 years or more prior to, to that. And Israel had been carried off into captivity into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed. Now at the end of the 70 years of captivity, God raised up a Persian by the name of Cyrus who ended up conquering not only the Babylonian Empire, but all the other neighboring empires and establishing the largest and most powerful empire the world had known to that moment. And so in the midst of this great empire, which stretched from the Aegean Sea to the Indus River, in other words, from the islands of Greece to Pakistan, all the way across southwestern Asia, was this great empire ruled by the Persians. In the midst of that empire was this teeny, teeny little minority of people called Jews several tens of thousands of which lived in, in Babylon and in the area around there. Well, God put it in the heart of Cyrus to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. But if you read through the events, particularly in the book of Ezra, you know there was an immense amount of opposition to that. They didn't want the Jews coming back and rebuilding the walls or rebuilding their temple. And, and so as Zerubbabel got the command that he was to go back and rebuild the uh, temple and, and to begin the reconstruction of Jerusalem, it was like, ugh. How can we do this? We're so few, and this is a vast empire. We have so many enemies. And so the Lord told him, It is not by your might nor by your power, but is by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And, and, and that perfectly translates into this situation too. Because who is Othniel and a few little warriors along with him uh, up against this Kushan Rishathaim, this uh, king who's come down from Aharm Narim up there, uh, basically Syria, and, and marched down south here? Who, who is he? Well, he's nobody. But in God, he is able to do the task. It was not until after the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost that they would become those of whom it was said they turned the world upside down. Prior to that, they were looked upon as a motley little group of, of ignorant fishermen who were following some errant rabbi. But after the Spirit of God came upon them, they were the ones of whom it was said within the Roman Empire they were turning the world upside down. The difference was, of course, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus had said that you will wait until you are endued with power from on high. And we read about that in doing in the first part of the book of Acts. All of God's people, from Adam and Eve to you and to me, become effective in the Lord's service and are able to live meaningful, effective lives only in direct proportion to the extent by which we submit to the indwelling Holy Spirit. I mean, that is clear and simple. As much as you can boil it down to a simple formula, that's it. The degree to which we submit, yield, daily, moment by moment, to the indwelling Holy Spirit is the degree by which God will use us 
and our lives will have meaning and value and we will be content with our role in God's kingdom. If we are born-again Christians, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Because Paul tells us in Romans that if we don't have the Spirit of, of God living within us, we're none of His. So we have the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. But it's possible for you and for me to quench the Holy Spirit because when the Holy Spirit comes within our lives, He does not take away our will. We still have a will. And, and you've probably noticed sometimes that will is not exactly in line with God's will. You know, sometimes we, oh, I'm going to do this thing, you know, or, or whatever. And we almost have the attitude, I'm going to do it whether God wants me to do it or not, you know. And, and when we get to that point, we're quenching the Spirit. It's like throwing water on the flames, you know. We quench God's Spirit in our lives by thinking and acting selfishly. By, at any moment, refusing to submit to His divine will in that moment, which is... In, in some ways, it's almost scary because it means we have to be constantly conscious and aware of God's work in our lives. We can't just kick in a neutral on, you know, autopilot. I'm going through this day on autopilot, mm, you know, and, and uh, no, we, we have to be, every day, we have to be aware. What does God want me to do in, in this situation? We have to be willing to submit to His Spirit. Otherwise, we quench the Spirit. In in, uh, most of us are familiar with the list that Paul gives us in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He gives us a whole series of instructions, very succinct, little pithy statements there, which enable us to understand what it means to be effective Christians. Right in the middle of that list, he has the phrase, do not quench the Spirit. Now, Paul wouldn't put it there if it wasn't possible for us to do this. I mean, here is the almighty Spirit of the living God, and you and I can quench Him in our lives and in our ministry. And when we do so, we do so to our own peril because then we, we deny His empowerment to do what He's called us to do that day, that moment, that in, that, in that particular situation, what it, might, what it might be. We strip ourselves of the power for effective Christian living if we quench the Spirit. God desires that you and I be shofatim that we be deliverers. He's called us here to be deliverers. How do we deliver our people, the, the, our families, the people around us, our workers? How, how do we do that? We do that by introducing them to the deliverer, Jesus Christ, by reflecting His image all around us. That's how we become deliverers in this world because for most of us, we will not be involved in physical combat as Othniel would be. Othniel's combat was physical, but it was spiritual too. And as we move on to the next deliverer, we, we discover even more that this is spiritual warfare we're talking about, not just physical warfare. And we are in, locked in spiritual warfare. The scripture tells us to submit to God and resist the devil. Well, that, that's how we, we become aware of, of the situation, of the spiritual situation that's going on around us. We have to consciously do that. It isn't automatic. Well, I, I, you know, 25 years ago, 125 years ago, whenever it was, I, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. Well, you know, that's being born again. We're, we're, we're babies in Christ. But as we walk along in Him, we must learn to submit every day, every hour to Him. Because you, you may not have, this may not happen to you, but I, I notice every once in a while that I decide I'm going to run this thing for myself right now. Well, you know, I'm no longer in submission to Him. And when I'm not in submission to him, I'm wide open to the attacks of the evil one. So 
Submit to God, resist the devil. This is a key to carrying on spiritual warfare. The Spirit of God works in us and through us. When he does so, God accomplishes his will and others see Christ in us. I was reading in a little book called On This Day. And on this day um, in 1741, <clears throat> August 22nd, this is August 22nd in case you haven't looked at calendar. This is August 22nd. On this day in 1741, a monumental thing began to happen which exhibits the truth of this that it is by the Spirit of God that great things are done. Most of us are familiar with a man by the name of George Frederick Handel. Handel was a composer who lived in the early 18th century. He was a court composer to the uh, uh, Elector of Hanover, which was a German state in northwestern Germany. Well, the Elector of Hanover happened to be, of course, heir to the throne of Britain. And when um, the last of the Stuart dynasty died, Anne, the nearest Protestant male relative was George of Hanover. So George of Hanover, rather unwillingly, was brought over to England to become the King of England. He never really liked England, didn't like the English, he didn't like the English language, but nevertheless uh, this all happened. And he still was a German at heart. But uh, when he came over, this kind of drew some of the court people over to England too. And one of those who would eventually come would be George Frederick Handel. Well, Handel would become absolutely infatuated with the English. And he would become a naturalized English citizen. But what's important about Handel was that beginning in his early 20s, he was already a brilliant composer. And during the, the young years of his life, he was the single most famous composer in the European world in that day. I mean, they were fighting to get seats to listen to his newest compositions. But by about 1740, his rocket had fizzled, <laughs> you might say. His compositions were seemingly dull. Nobody really wanted to listen to them anymore. And uh, then in, uh, in August of 1741, someone sent him a, a verbal transcription of the passages of Scripture about Jesus Christ from the Old and the New Testament. See, he was so impressed with this that he went in, he locked his door on August 22nd. And 23 days later, he emerged with what we know is probably the greatest piece of Christian music ever written, Handel's Messiah. And even though that wouldn't be performed for another year and a half when it was performed, it just, I mean, it, here it was when his life had fizzled. By his might, by his power, he could do nothing more. But he, he, he claims that he doesn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body when he was writing the composition. He, he, he described it like Paul's words. He didn't even know. It was almost like he'd been in a, a state of altered <laughs> elevation here. And uh, God inspired him and, and he produced this great work of music, Messiah, by the power of God. And it's a powerful testimony to whom Jesus Christ is. All scripture written to glorious music. So again, a more modern example, 268 years ago, uh, of a man who was empowered by God when his own strength failed. Othniel was filled with wisdom and strength, and he was enabled by God to defeat the forces of Cushan Rishathaim. There's no detail given here. It doesn't say that Othniel raised up an army of you know, 10,000 Israelites. Uh, it doesn't say anything. It just says that God empowered Othniel to defeat Cushan Rishathaim. Well, Cushan Rishathaim, he had conquered the whole area, so he didn't have an army of like 12 guys, you know. I mean, he had an army of thousands. He came north from, from Aram of the Rivers, uh, probably from the greater Damascus area. 
and he marched south and, and he oppressed Israel for these eight years and suddenly Othniel goes out and squishes him. <laughs> you know, how did he do that? He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we, we need to understand that Cush and Rishathaim was a real man. He was a flesh and blood individual. If he was standing right here with us, we could touch him and we probably wouldn't be able to talk to him because we wouldn't understand his, well, maybe Heather would, but no, <laughs> I don't think he spoke Arabic either. Uh, Arabic hadn't been invented yet as a language, but, uh, you know, whatever he spoke, Aramaean, Aramaean or whatever, he was a representative of the spiritual forces of darkness. Just as Adolf Hitler, as, as much as he was a human being, represented the spiritual forces of darkness. One of the great efforts of Satan to destroy God's people the Jews. Whatever we think about the Jews in terms of their personal relationship to the Messiah, they still are God's chosen people. That doesn't mean they're going to heaven simply because they're Jews. The vast majority will probably end up in hell, but still they are a people that God has set aside, and Satan's role has been to try to destroy them from the very beginning. And so Cush and Rishathaim represented that spiritual force of darkness that wanted to extinguish the light of God in this world. And so what occurs under Othniel against Cush and Rishathaim, although it is physical war, it is holy war. It is holy war. It's the war of the forces of God against the forces of Satan, and the forces of Satan, of course, are crushed. Now the difference between oppression under Cush and Rishathaim and freedom from Cush and Rishathaim was in the working of the Spirit of God through Othniel and the repentance of Israel. The repentance of Israel opened the door for God's deliverance. Repentance must come first. And as repentance comes, God's victory comes. Personally, in our own walk with God against the forces of darkness and in the case of the history of God's people as we read it in the pages of Scripture. What happens next? Forty years. Othniel is the Shofat, Shofat of Israel, the deliverer, and for 40 years Israel experiences shalom. Shalom. The, the uh, well-being of being in God's presence and led by his deliverer and worshiping him. Every man sitting under his fig tree or his vine, uh, symbolic of all is well, all is well in my life and in my family. Well, let, let's read on in the, 12th, in the uh, third chapter, beginning at the 12th verse. Let's read the next three verses or so. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek. And he went and defeated Israel. And they possessed the city of the palm trees, and the sons of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Well, first time they turned against the Lord, they served Cush and Rishathaim eight years. Now Moab, it's 18 years. <laughs> Things are not improving. Verse 12 is it. The first phrase of verse 12 is really, really tragic because it marks what you will see repeated through the book of Judges. Now the sons of Israel again again did evil in the sight of the Lord. What happened? Peace produced complacency. 
And complacency opened the door to apostasy. It's a cycle that is repeated through the scripture. It's a cycle that's repeated through the history of the church. Peace, complacency, apostasy. Peace, complacency, apostasy. What that doesn't necessarily mean, but seems to imply is peace is not a good thing. At least not long-lasting peace that we take for granted. I don't just mean political peace, of course. This is much more than political peace. But you and I also, I think, are well aware of the truth that when things are going well, there is a temptation to become complacent. And when we become complacent, we can cease to realize our utter dependence upon God for our very next breath. In Proverbs 3, verse 12, we read, Whom the Lord loves, he chastises. Now, we, we like to read the verses that say, Whom the Lord loves, he blesses. But you know, chastisement is actually part of blessing. When we chastise our children, we, don't, we, we do it, hopefully, because we love them. And we want them to do what is good and right for them. And so it is with the Lord. He loved Israel too much to allow them to continue to go down this track of destruction, to follow off into idolatry. And so what does he do? He strengthens Eglon, king of Moab, and gives him the power to oppress Israel. How would that fit today? God allowing a governmental situation to develop here in the United States where Christians are oppressed. We are seeing it happen. And I would not be at all surprised, even though I think it's our role to work and to pray against oppression of all, of all sorts, I wouldn't be surprised to see it grow and develop. Because if anything produces a gem, it's heat and pressure. Those beautiful diamonds and rubies and sapphires that we love so well were not produced by, you know, the chemicals just sitting there in a plate. You know, they were under heat and tremendous pressure. If we want to be the jewels of God, we will probably be submitted, as we often have been already, but maybe even more so, to heat and pressure. So who were the Moabites? The Moabites were the people who lived directly to the east and somewhat south, and they, were, became, they became God's whip to chastise Israel because they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what happens next is really fascinating because we can see it on three levels. First of all, we see this guy Eglon, king of Moab, you know, big guy we find out. And I think he thought he was pretty cool. Hey, these Israelites marched through our land. They launched the invasion of Canaan from the plains of Moab. They made it really tough for us. And now I've brought the Ammonites and the Amalekites together, and we are going to rule Israel. And I think he thought he was a real cool dude, you know, great king, creating this alliance against Israel. And then on a second level, a higher, second higher level, we discover, I think, that Satan is behind this. And he thought he was going to use this physical human alliance to ultimately destroy the people of God because this is his plan from day one, from Genesis 3.15 on, it's been his plan to destroy the possibility of a people of God surviving and bringing a Messiah into the world. But on the highest level, what we discover is that behind this whole thing is God. God is behind the oppression of his own people. Yeah. That doesn't seem right. 
but God is behind it because he is going to accomplish a higher plan. The irony of all of this is mind-boggling to know that Satan and his tool, Eglon, who are doing all their dastardly deeds and going, yeah, this is a great thing. And behind it is God and he's manipulating them through it all. It helps us, of course, to have confidence that we serve a God who controls it all. Controls it all. Eglon, king of the Moabites, fashioned this alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. What is so amazing about this is that the Moabites, the Amalekites, and the Ammonites are all related to Israel. It's like having your cousins ally against you. How do we know this? Well, let's turn back to Genesis 19. We were in Genesis 19 in, uh, let's see, 1992 or 3, somewhere along there. Verse 30, Genesis 19:30, And Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters with him. For he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it came about on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both, Lot, daughter, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. And the firstborn bore a son, and his name was called Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites to this day. And for the younger, she also bore a son. His name is Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. One of the things about Scripture is that it tells it like it is. Because it's in Scripture doesn't mean God advocates it. This was not the plan of God. These women were not seeking the direction of God to do this. God does not uh, advocate or uh, will incest. And what happens as a result? God's people are oppressed by the very ones who are the product of this vile action. What we further discover is that the third people in the alliance, the Amalekites, were descended from Esau, Jacob's brother, because Amalek was born to Esau's son, Eliphaz. Now, we've run into the Amalekites before. They had attacked Israel in the wilderness, remember, before they even got to Mount Sinai. And God put Amalek under a special curse. Let's go to Exodus 17. Exodus 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were held steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly brought out, blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner, my standard. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So here we have peoples born close to Israel in the lineage who are now allied against Israel and are God's whip. <laughs> I mean, God said he's going to have war from generation to generation against Amalek there to be blotted out, and yet God is using those very people to chastise his own people. Because of their apostasy, Israel was defeated by Eglon's alliance. And the site of Jericho, the city of the Palms, was taken by this alliance. And it became the base of operation for the oppression of Israel. The very city whose walls miraculously fell and Israel had its first victory in the land of Canaan became the site from which they would be oppressed for 18 years. Later in time, Israel would say that Jerusalem could never fall to an enemy because Jerusalem is the city of God. And we have the temple here. And yet in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, not only did the city fall, but the temple was destroyed. And many Israelites just could not comprehend how that could possibly be because God dwelled in the temple. But it helps us to understand that physical locations, events in history are, are not things that God so empowers in such a way that they can never be modified because God wants to do something else. Uh, we can't rest in the past. We can't rest in, in being in a holy building of some sort. Our rest comes in our daily walk with Him, our daily walk with Him. What counts is our now relationship with Him, not our past relationship, not our environment, but our now moment-by-moment -moment relationship with Him. And so God demonstrates the fact that, so what? Jericho was the site of my great victory, but hey, you guys aren't walking obediently with me, so I'll let the enemy occupy the site. I'll let the enemy destroy Jerusalem. I'll let the enemy destroy the great temple of Solomon. I'll let the enemy carry off the Ark of the Covenant, and it's never been seen since. So out of this, I think we derive, if nothing else, the absolute necessity of the moment-by-moment -moment daily walk with the Spirit of God, empowering us and, and our maintaining the fact that we are in a holy war. We're in a holy war. Today, you are in a holy war. Today, the enemy will come, and, and we need to stand against him so that he does not have the victory. Well, uh, what we'll do uh, next week is we'll pick up with the 15th verse of uh, Judges, and we'll read an, read an incredible story about a deliverer by the name of Ehud that God will raise up and use in, in a very odd way to achieve deliverance.